0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One day, Henry Berg was asked a strange question. Berg was a former government official. He had once served under President Abraham Lincoln. But by April of 1874, when he was asked the question, he was the head of a new organization that he had created, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And the question was asked to him by a Methodist missionary, but it was not about animals, nor was it about religion. It was about a little girl who was around age 10 named Mary Ellen McCormick. The missionary thought Mary Ellen was being mistreated by the woman who took care of her. Berg did not quite know what to say. He ran an organization designed to help animals, not children. But Berg thought that if there was enough evidence of the mistreatment, the police or the courts would take notice. The case went all the way to the New York State Supreme Court. It was a sensation. Young Mary Ellen testified, and her caretaker was put in prison. Eventually, the Methodist missionary got custody of the girl. That year, a new organization started, the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, Ever since then, as child welfare organizations have spread across the country and become incorporated into local governments, and as every one of them has experienced its own tragedies, they've asked the same question. How do you protect the most vulnerable among us? This is the story of the search to answer that question and where the search may have gone wrong. It's also the story of how technology can be an amazing tool in helping us do the right thing and how that same technology could have some serious downsides. But first, before you can understand how to come up with solutions, you've got to understand the problem. And for those who work in child protective services, it often starts with something called the front door.
1: So the front door in the child welfare system is really at the point that a call is initiated to a child welfare hotline um, alerting the the public child welfare agency that there are concerns about the safety or well-being of a minor
0: child. Emily Putnam Hornstein is an associate professor at the University of Southern California and director of the Children's Data Network.
1: It really is staggering the number of calls that our child welfare hotlines are screening on an annual basis. It's actually over 4 million referrals a year involving almost 7 million children, and so it's a system that's asked to do a lot of screening at that front door when there are concerns about the safety of a
0: child. 4 million referrals represents massive amounts of data. Mountains of it. Mountain ranges of it. And the question of what you do with it can make all the difference for kids. Every city, every town, every state in the country wants to understand the best way to handle this data, as well as lots of other data that they have about people who live in the area. But we're going to focus on just one county, Allegheny County, which encircles the city of Pittsburgh. Allegheny has been intent on finding a breakthrough which might serve as a model for the whole country. So a few years ago, they put out a call for ideas and Emily Putnam Hornstein answered it along with someone who hadn't spent her life working on child welfare.
2: I'm a health economist, and I did work on trying to help clinicians identify patients who are going to come back to hospital within the next couple of years to offer those people services so that they can stop them getting readmitted.
0: That's Reema Vaithyanathan, co-director of the Center for Social Data Analytics at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. Putnam-Hornstein and Vaithyanathan believe they could help Allegheny County sift through those mountains of data to figure out which kids might need early intervention from professionals. And remember, the reality on the ground is that these mountains include not just jail records and other sorts of municipal data, but they're also built up bit by bit every single time a child welfare hotline worker answers the phone.
1: So they're fielding a call, and uh, obviously, the amount of information that the individual calling the hotline, uh, that can vary in terms of how accurate it is and how much information there is. Um, So we're really asking our hotline screeners to make a really important decision. Am I screening this in for some type of follow-up investigation Or am I going to screen it out? And that's the end of it. And we're asking them to do that for a very large number of calls each year um, where the stakes are quite critical. And we're asking them to do that with um, often imperfect and partial information uh, being communicated to them.
0: Reema Vaithyanathan sat with screeners as they took some of those calls. And she says it was stressful.
1: I had never
2: realized just How, what a difficult decision we're asking our call screening staff to make until I sat in on some of those calls. And quite frankly, I thought every call I was ready to get into my car and drive out. I just couldn't figure out how which call was concerning and which call wasn't. And I'm just, I was blown away by the process that they went through and how well they did it. But as a layperson, I just, It's staggering how to make decisions on, you know, these children.
0: So Vaithi is sitting there watching screeners do what seemed like the impossible, predict the future. They would look around in the computer records, what info had come in before about this family, what services had they used, were there major concerns? There were meetings between hotline call takers and supervisors. And then in an effort to potentially head off disaster, they had to make a critical decision.
2: Do we file this way and call it a screen out or do we go out and subject that family to an investigation? And I think increasingly as I become more familiar with that point, I now realize that both sides of this decision are actually burdensome. Going out and subjecting a family to an investigation is also burdensome. So they're right. I was wrong. You shouldn't drive out on every call.
0: But every screener, of course, is different. Some think some factors are more important and some think other factors are more important. And if what you're trying to do is help kids in an efficient and a consistent way, that sort of variation can be problematic. So Emily Putnam-Hornstein and Rima Vaithyanathan came up with an algorithm, which is just a recipe for a computer to follow. And their algorithm was tasked with using old data from Allegheny County, from hospitals, from schools, from jails, to try to figure out... Which kids might be headed for major involvement with child welfare? So the algorithm would look at 2011, 2012, make risk predictions, and Putnam-Hornstein and Vaithya now then could see, okay, what actually happened to this kid by 2015 or 2016? If the child was at high risk, they got a high score. If they were at a low risk, they got a lower score it's
1: just by the numbers. And one thing I do I I also want to clarify because it's something that sometimes confuses people. Um Rima and I've been really careful to always point out that we are not necessarily predicting maltreatment. We are predicting future system involvement with the child welfare system. We know that there are children who become involved with the child welfare system who are not maltreated. Um, We know that there are maltreated children who never come to the attention of the child welfare system. What we're trying to do is equip a public system Uh, with a tool that can help it make better decisions so that it can intervene earlier with high-risk families where those families are more likely to become either the chronic cases with lots and lots of referrals to the child welfare system or the cases where the system has to go so far that there's a child removed. And if there was anything that could have been done upstream of that um, through more targeted supports,
0: we would want to do that. But as much hope and work was invested in this algorithm, once it was implemented, its creators had to sit back and worry.
2: I was really worried that we wouldn't see the fact that kids who scored high ended up having more case openings and kids who scored low didn't.
1: I think that my my greatest concern was simply
0: that it wouldn't change anything at all. Final results haven't come in yet. It hasn't been long enough for that. But early signs look promising to the two scholars. Vaithya notes that algorithm scores have done a good job of predicting the level of concern of human caseworkers when they visit the kids at their homes. And Putnam Hornstein sat in on a meeting with an Allegheny call screener who said this tool has led to richer conversations with her supervisor. And by that, she meant
1: it used to be that I would look at the call that came in, do a scan of the data, and then I would go in and chat with my supervisor and the supervisor would make a decision about screen in or screen out. Now what happens is I have my initial reaction to the call that's come in and then I look at the algorithm score. And if they are aligned then it's a really nice gut check and I've got that going into my meeting with my supervisor. If they don't align and I think it's a really low risk referral and yet I've got an algorithm telling me that there might be a a, a kind of a high likelihood of future system involvement for this family, It one, forces me to go in and do a deeper dive into the data to better understand why it is I'm seeing this elevated risk, even though the information communicated on the call uh, does not seem in and of itself all all that severe. And two, when I go in to meet with my supervisor, we are looking more closely at the data because I've had
0: the score to help point me in that direction. It wasn't a miracle, but the two women saw that this technological tool was helping government run more smoothly, which meant more help for kids most in need. But innovations rarely come without controversy. And this algorithm might have a side effect that could undermine its entire aim. What's that side
3: effect? It could be doing more harm than good. The design of the tool, I believe, is compromised in some really significant and important ways. Virginia Eubanks is a professor of political
0: science at the University at Albany, part of the State University of New York system. And she's the author of Automating Inequality, How High Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor, which focuses in part on the work of Allegheny County to implement this algorithm.
3: So the major concern that parents have, the parents who feel like they're being targeted by the system have, is what's thought of as a false positive problem. And false positives just mean seeing harm uh, or potential harm where no harm actually exists. Um, And that's totally understandable from a parent's point of view, right? They feel like because the data that drives the model is only really collected on poor and working um, families, that that means their families are being over surveilled because of that surveillance they are being over-indicated for maltreatment and because they're over-indicated more data is collected on them which creates a feedback loop which just gets worse and worse. Um, so very similar to the way people talk about the some of the problems um, with predictive policing around race right? Because communities of color are tend to be over-policed. Then you, you find more evidence that, you know, normal bad stuff is happening in neighborhoods that are over-policed. But that becomes a feedback loop when you gather more data, which controls where police officers go, which means they end up back in those neighborhoods, which means feedback loop, right? So parents are concerned that there's something very similar going on with this tool in Allegheny County. Um, so they believe that it confuses parenting while poor with poor parenting.
0: Remember, Eubanks says, the mountains of data that Child Protective Services all over the country deal with every day, that data comes from people, from teachers, the police, doctors, neighbors. And those people may have biases they don't even recognize.
3: It's really important to note that the community calls on Black and bi- biracial families three and a half times more often than they call on white families, hmm. and that actually has you mean everything. somebody just gets on the
0: phone and and yes. calls in a complaint to a hotline and says like this kid doesn't seem to have food or whatever, and that happens more to Black and biracial families.
3: Absolutely. And mandated reporters report more on black and biracial families than they do on white families as well. So that is, you know, if a child comes into the emergency room with a spiral fracture, if it's a black or biracial family, they're much more likely to call CPS on them. Um, But if a white family comes in, they're much less likely to call CPS on them. So, right, right, you can imagine the sort of unexamined bias of a doctor or a nurse might lead them to see a black family and say, oh, I think that's abuse. But to see a white family and say, oh, maybe they fell off the jungle gym.
0: The over-surveillance and suspicion of poor and minority families, Eubanks argues, means that such parents are in a constant state of worry. They don't want their kids to go to the park alone, as a wealthier family might, because they think they're more on the radar of child services. They might not want to use state-subsidized mental health care because they're worried what might be written about them in some computer file somewhere which raises a huge and potentially counterintuitive possibility. Maybe all this data is backfiring.
3: If we're building tools that make families feel more isolated and increase their stress, then we're likely building tools that might create the very conditions we're trying to eliminate. Eubank says
0: if what we're really looking to do is take care of other people and help them become better families, we might be missing the boat.
3: One of my great concerns about these technical tools is they allow us to wriggle out of the really deep problems that we're facing in these larger systems, right? So I talk about them in the book as um, sometimes they act as empathy overrides, right? There's a like a frontline caseworker who is faced with this incredibly inhuman, impossible decision like, um, you know, which family stays together and which one gets broken up or which unhoused person gets access to housing resources and who stays on the sidewalk. And I totally empathize with those caseworkers who might want um, a little bit of support making that decision and not feel like it's landing completely on them. But I believe that sometimes we use these tools to escape our larger responsibility for caring for each other.
0: Emily Putnam-Hornstein, the co-creator of the algorithm that's meant to help people figure out which kids are at risk, says not to put too fine a point on it, focusing on empathy doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So when a call comes into the hotline,
1: um, I'm not sure that it's empathy that should be driving whether we make a decision to investigate or not. I think we have an obligation to the families who are reported to use the best data and the best science so that we can create a, a kind of an equitable experience for them. Um, and it's really important to keep in mind, Allegheny, the algorithm is being used only at Hotline. Once a decision is made to either screen in or screen out, the worker who goes out to engage with the family has no idea what the score is. Because at that point, we are in the mode of clinical judgment, assessing the family's strengths, figuring out what supports are needed. This algorithm is just being used for a screening decision that is very challenging to make, where there is no opportunity to engage with the family directly. And it's being used to hopefully lead to more families getting the supports they need and fewer families being
0: screened in unnecessarily. Putnam-Hornstein notes that if they have information about a family, they have an obligation to use it to protect children. If they happen not to have similar info about a wealthy family, then they don't have it, but they're not going to ignore information that indicates a child needs help. Her collaborator, Rima Vaithyanathan, also disputes the notion that their algorithm may be amplifying bias. She says being on food stamps, for example, actually tends to decrease your risk score because it means a family in need is availing themselves of a service that will help their kids eat better. Though she does agree that surveillance and bias often cuts against communities of color. But if you're working on reducing that bias, she says, relying more on random humans who all have a bundle of likes and dislikes and instincts about things like race, that may not really be the way to go.
2: Around a third of our Black and African-American families have a score of a low risk. And yet they're being disproportionately screened in. Now, this is a very simple policy that Allegheny is now moving towards, which is asking themselves, are we over-screening in those families? And now with the aid of this decision tool, it might help them understand why they're doing it and then try to remove some of that over-screening.
0: It sounds like you're saying humans have implicit bias. And in your view... Having uh, the computer look through the data instead of having a human make a judgment may remove bias from the system.
2: Yes, it may. It may offset because we are now comparing like with
0: like. So on one side, you've got the argument that, look, algorithms discriminate against the poor and minorities because they're dealing with certain kinds of data. So technology is only making the problem worse. On the other side, you've got the argument that, look, calls come into call centers and they're answered by humans. If you want their inherent biases to enter into the equation, let everything rely on the call screeners. If you want a more standardized system, let an objective tool weigh in. What both sides agree on is that algorithms are going to be used more and more across the country. Emily Putnam-Hornstein hopes that in the future, they can be used earlier in the process to figure out what families might really benefit the most from services like visits from a nurse after a child is born. In programs like that, there aren't a lot of spots available, and it's hard to figure out who would benefit the most. The fact is, I think that this is an innovation that
1: can move all of our child welfare systems in a really important and good direction when it comes to these challenging screening decisions.
0: The mission is clear when it comes to protecting kids, but it's rarely simple. Do the right thing. If you want to understand more about the work that Putnam Hornstein and Vaithya Naldin do on risk modeling and algorithms, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. There, we will also have more from Virginia Eubanks, who has written extensively, not just about Allegheny County, but about programs in Los Angeles and Indiana.